Time for choke points now. The state patrol on the prowl across the mountain passes, making sure truck drivers are ready for the snow. Chris is here with those details. Good morning. Good morning. These signs, as you know, went up on either side of Snoqualmie Pass in October, reminding drivers that they must carry chains on their rigs between November 1st and April 1st. It is a requirement. It's not just when it snows. And it didn't take long for the state patrol and other agencies to follow up on those signs. They stopped and inspected 121 trucks over over a two-day emphasis patrol earlier this month. 32 of the trucks were not properly equipped with chains. For State Patrol Sergeant Rocky Oliphant, it was a subtle reminder for drivers to be ready for what's coming. The worst time to try to get compliance is when the snow's falling and we're pulling trucks over in the snow because we will also do chain enforcement when the snow is falling. But ideally, we want to catch them before it gets to that point, before there's snow on the pass. Sergeant Oliphant says inspections will continue throughout the season. Our hope is that they are now in compliance. So now that when those passes get snow and chains are, you know, needing to be worn on the tires, that they have them equipped. On the whole, Sergeant Oliphant says Washington truck drivers are very good and their trucks are safe. But a little enforcement goes a long way. It's just to ensure that truck drivers are driving safe, that their trucks are safe and that uh, we limit collisions or fatalities in association with commercial vehicles. So I asked Sergeant Oliphant what they look for when pulling over a truck, because I've always wondered, I mean, how can you tell if they've got a brake issue or if they've got a flat tire? I mean, speeding is one thing, but I mean, how do you know? What do they look for? Within the commercial vehicle division, we're able to stop trucks to do inspections. So I don't need to see a, a semi-truck going, you know, 72 and a 60 to pull it over. So basically, they can just pull over any truck they want to and just say, hey, yeah, by the way, random inspection. Let's, you know, see what you got. And there are different levels of inspections, whether it's, you know, looking at paperwork or looking at, uh, you know, the, the systems, the engine, things like that. And uh, Oliphant says sometimes they find interesting things. Not only are we looking for chains, but we're looking for maybe a flat tire on a truck, maybe... Um, some issues with the brakes, maybe some other safety violation on a truck. And uh, Sergeant Oliphant was at the Stanwood way station last week, not doing chain enforcement and whatnot, but he said he caught this violation, which is uh, scary. He had driven 11 hours, which is fine, except then he claimed off-duty status on his logbook, drove another 10 hours, and then went back on duty and drove another 10 hours. So that's a that's a violation. So it's stuff like that that we're trying to catch to make sure we don't have a fatigued driver driving down the road. And it's just not I-90 and Highway 2 over Stevens Pass where the chain requirement is active from November to April. There are 12 spots in the state that have this requirement. You can find a complete list of where those are. I know most of our truck drivers know those by heart if those are part of their routes. <laughs> yeah. But you can go to MyNorthwest.com if you're interested in finding out more about chain enforcement and uh, what the commercial vehicle division does at State Patrol. We don't often talk about them. Yeah, it's a good reminder. It's also a good reminder, even if you don't drive a big truck, that uh, winter is coming and I need to make sure that my personal vehicle is ready if you're headed to the mountain passes for snow or whether you're headed to eastern Washington or whatnot. Yeah, definitely. That's something that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Travis, as we work our way through, uh, I know I'll be making another trip to Montana (laughs) this weekend. Mm. Uh, And so, yeah, it's always good to have a good kit in your car, you know, know, whatever you call your little go bag, water, blankets, uh, you know, a little kitty litter, maybe if you if you find yourself getting stuck and also like these truck drivers making sure they have their chains so when they need them they have them put on your chains if you've never done it before in your driveway that's right when it is dry and so the first time you're doing it is not on snoqualmie pass in the middle of the night when it's 
pouring down snow yeah. and you're scared to death. So, yeah, tr- a little advanced planning goes a long way when it goes to our winter passes. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield in for Dave Ross. Is the U.S. about to make a big move toward regulating artificial intelligence? CBS tech contributor Ian Schur is here. Ian, let's start with this secure by design push that the U.S. and other countries seem to be making here. What does that mean? Well, uh, frankly, what it means is that one of the conversations we're having quite often uh, over the last year is how do we avoid hearing Arnold Schwarzenegger's voice everywhere, right? <laughs> how do we avoid the Terminator? And one of the things that government has realized is that this is a national security issue, right? And not to sound too, you know, the sky is falling about it. But there is some significant uh, progress that's happened in AI in the last year. And there is concern that the competitive pressures of capitalism are going to encourage companies to do things that maybe may not be the safest thing they could do. And so part of this agreement is not just the United States, right? Because the president has already used the Defense Production Act, which is a wartime law to make sure we have like enough you know, tires for our airplanes and stuff to make sure that AI companies by law have to disclose to the government what they're doing, what they're developing, how it goes, if anything happens and all that type of stuff. But now this international agreement is about a bunch of other countries, including Britain and a bunch of, you know, the the kind of the larger company countries out there making sure that they agree to similar rules, essentially. Does this have any teeth or is this more of a, hey, this is what we would really like you to do to the tech companies? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, as is with most international law, uh, it's very much a please do this versus a having any teeth. That said, I think that uh, a lot of the countries agree that this is something that we need to take very carefully. And part of why is you look at what happened with Airbnb and Uber, right? They uh, came out, they were very popular. They ran roughshod over a lot of local governments, including, by the way, in other countries, and really ended up causing a lot of distress, right? And upsetting a lot of existing industries and not for the better, some people would argue. So this time around, governments are coming together and saying, "Okay, we're not going to wait until all of the destruction happens to act on it. This time we're going to make sure we're we're kind of ahead of it as much as we can. And, uh, you know, for that for that point, actually, I'm I'm pretty impressed that within a year of ChatGPT coming out, we're already having these conversations in very public ways. This is Seattle, the land of tech. Microsoft headquarters is in Redmond. I'm full disclosure. My husband actually works in AI at Microsoft. And I'm just wondering how companies are responding to the idea that governments might be stepping in and saying, hey, maybe pause things just a little bit. Maybe think about what you're building. It is everywhere. Let me tell you, some companies feel as though any restrictions are going to upset what could be a transformational technology for the economy. And and to be clear, there are a lot of people who would argue it's already transforming the economy, certainly my industry as well, right? But I think that the 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 thing is that many of the leaders in this industry, including, by the way, uh, Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, but also uh, OpenAI's CEO, uh, Sam Altman, or whatever he is right now, right? He got fired and then rehired. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever his title um, is at this moment. 
yeah. <laughs> we'll call him just Sam Altman. There you now. go. But, you know, the, they have all also publicly said that they want more government interaction. So, you know, <clears throat> in a lot of ways, I think, you know, there are elements of the tech industry who are very, um, you know, anti-government. But in this instance, and I think partially the people who are in charge and the people who have the money seem to all agree that government in involvement in some way is more very important. I want to turn the page a little bit and talk about Meta and this multi-state lawsuit as well, because there have been some developments here, and I hope you can help us understand them. 33 states, including our own Washington, have uh, been involved in this lawsuit against Meta, and it really is um, a privacy issue. And apparently we're learning because of some newly unsealed documents here that Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, routinely documented children under the age of 13 on Instagram and collected their data. I mean, that's as as a parent of two children under the age of 13, I I certainly don't like the sound of that. Uh, Ditto. Yes, I agree. And look, I think part of the challenge here and, and Meta is pretty forthright about, you know, their response to this, which is that this is an industry-wide problem, right? <laughs> we can talk about algorithms and the way that Meta and Facebook and Instagram are designed all day long. And there's a lot of criticism to have against them. I have written a lot of it. I have said a lot of it to their face. They know. But part of the problem that also exists is that people lie, right? Like all the time. And when you're signing up for Facebook, it asks you if you're 13. If you sign up for Instagram, it asks you if you're about the age of 13. And a lot of people just say yes, and they don't tell the truth. And so it's actually part of the reason that governments have come down on YouTube, now Instagram and Facebook and a bunch of others, because they say, look, we understand there's a lot of debate about the harms that are going on. There's this internal research at Facebook that the Wall Street Journal and many other publications have written about um, where it, you know, it kind of spells out what the problems are and how Facebook knows these issues exist, uh, which feels very like the old tobacco industry problems. But there's also this other element, which is that people choose to try and get access to this. And even people who shouldn't be under the age of 13 are lying in order to get it. I also want to ask you about this iPhone headline that's kind of everywhere this morning. Some police departments, even some news organizations seem to be warning people that there may be safety risks about a new iPhone feature called Name Drop. Um, First, tell us what the feature is and then tell us, is this is this warning really something we need to take serious? Is there a risk here? Yeah, so it's a nifty feature. What happens is that if you bring a phone or watch, Apple Watch, obviously, together close enough, they don't have to touch, but like practically together, they will suddenly be able to share your contact info, right? And the idea is making it really easy for you to be uh, sharing this information. Like most of the time when I'm meeting up with like a new parent friend or whatever, I tend to hand them my phone and say, can you type in your your email or your phone number? Yeah, same. And this essentially makes it a lot easier, right? Totally awesome idea. The unfortunate thing is that a number of police departments have said, oh, well, this is something that's dangerous. And I guess they imagine a world in which maybe you're in a a crowded area and someone kind of comes by and is able to swipe your information by being near you. But the truth of it is that you have to always approve sending the information. It's it, 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 there's there's really no way for someone to just, you know, randomly cause it to happen. So, yeah, this is unfortunately one of those elements of 
the police and some cybersecurity people are raising concerns about something that a lot of experts say is actually fundamentally very safe. And yes, there may be a risk, just like whenever you step into the ocean, you might get bit by a shark. But reality is we don't live in Hollywood and it doesn't happen very often. CBS tech contributor Ian Schur, thanks very much for being here this morning. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. For your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. For many teenagers, recycling is an annoying chore, but for one teen, it's his life's work. CBS's Carter Evans has the story. Ryan Hickman may only be 14 years old, but he already runs a recycling business covering a large stretch of Southern California. This is probably about five days. Five days? He started collecting and sorting bottles and cans from neighbors and friends when he was just three years old. It's fun. It's good for the planet. Why not? And free money, too. All those nickels he was earning were adding up. By the time he was seven, Ryan had reached his first $10,000. And when this Facebook post went viral overnight, Ryan's recycling became a rampant success. This is from everywhere I've heard from. Now, with the help of his donated electric van, Ryan collects cash not only for his college fund, but to help others. He has a worldwide following and a bedroom wall full of awards for his charity work. Anaheim Ducks. Is he waste and recycling? Ryan now leads beach cleanups almost every week. Oh, piece of styrofoam right here. Man, I can't believe you spotted that. <laughs> I have good eyes. <laughs> you make money off the bottles and cans, but you don't make any money off this. No. This is just all volunteer. Thank you. Uh-huh. Out of the goodness of your heart, huh? Mm-hmm. Trash. All driven by a teenage boy's passion and compassion. This is trash. You want to get it? Yeah, I want to get it. This is like pity trash for me. <laughs> it's okay. Ryan's dad, Damien, is all in. This has taken over your family's life. This has become your business. Yeah, you know, and Ryan, I, I saw the passion that Ryan had in it at, at such a young age. And I'm like, wow, this is actually going someplace. So two years ago, he quit his job as a graphic designer and followed Ryan's passion for recycling. I think we have 8,000 customers since we started, and the numbers are growing every day. Their 14 employees drive around Southern California picking up people's bottles and cans. The white van is for plastic only. They recycle them and share the profits with their customers, while father and son share a bond. It's been fun getting to hang out with him, and he enjoyed it too. United on a mission to help the planet and pay for college one nickel at a time. Carter Evans, CBS News, San Juan Capistrano, California. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield in for Dave Frost. We have been talking all morning about the crazy, crazy commute in the south end from Tacoma north on I-5 and really all the routes north uh, to the city. Coming in, in that commute, in the midst of it all, is our own G. Scott. G, is it really as no. bad as Sully keeps saying it is? What? W- worse. Worse? Okay. For, for me, right, for me, this is the worst driving experience coming to Cairo ever, right? Right now, by the time I get into there, and of course, I'm still not there yet, it will be two hours and 40 minutes right there. Now, 
two hours and 40 minutes. I'm supposed to get in there, and I'm supposed to go get me a cup of coffee. I'm supposed to be in a good mood and in time for my show at 9 o'clock. And welcome to the Gene Ursula Show. How about that? Uh, I mean, you'll do it because you'll bring it, but also, like, you're going to yeah. seethe all day long. Uh, well, I mean, did you know what well, you were stepping into? No, I had no idea. I'm sure Sully's been letting everybody know. Y'all tell me, what happened? This is why everybody needs to be listening to the Cairo radio. What happened? Yeah, What's see, going on? Gee, at 6.03, I, I put a shout-out to you that said you better be on your way. Because <laughs> uh, it was a two-hour drive at 6 a.m. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. we, had a, we had a crash up at the Kent Des Moines Road. And, uh, yeah, it uh, it just put us behind. So, yeah, I should have texted you. I know, that's that's oh. on me. I should have texted you. Yeah, well, you know what? I know we got to be fair because everybody listening right now, Sully, they will want you to text them too, right? <laughs> so we got to be fair for everyone. You got to you, know, you got to listen early. You got to wake up in the morning listening to Cairo Radio. Where, so other than that, it'll be fine. Where are you right now, man? I was talking to you guys, and to be honest with you, I wasn't even paying attention. Let's see. <laughs> I am at – I really wasn't. Oh, I'm, I'm at some graffiti on my left, and, oh, I'm passing uh, good old Tequila. There we go. Oh, man. Oh, that is rough. <laughs> oh, right? You still got about 45 minutes to go. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're gonna have to. I'm gonna That's shout good. out into the uh, the newsroom to Chef to like. Um. <laughs> but you, but it was one of those things, and I don't know if anybody listening goes through this because I'm sure Sully, you probably tell folks all the time, hey, just go ahead, call your boss, let them know you're not you're gonna work from home. It was one of those things where I was in the car and I was rolling. I get I have my two water bottles and making sure because I drink my warm water bottles in the morning time. That's kind of my routine, and that's so why I'm rolling and everything like that. It wasn't until David Burbank called me up and was like, hey, just to let you know, traffic is kind of bad. And I'm like, oh, I thought it was just going to be the normal bad yeah, traffic. Yeah, kind of bad. I didn't know it was <laughs> yeah. bad, right? I didn't know it was going to be bad, bad traffic. Well, at that point, in the in, in the gambler's world, I was already pot committed. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So I was all in. No need to turn around. I'm heading in. It's all right. But, you know, and I also figured it'll be great for stories out there. But the, the good news is, I think it's clearing up right now. People aren't driving crazy, at least. Uh, And I wonder if they're in a good mood like I'm in a good mood because, hey, things could be worse. All right. I like it. Things could be worse. There it is from G. Scott. All right. We will be joining you at 9 a.m. May may the traffic gods be ever in your favor and you get here in time. Thanks, G. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that was good radio or not, but uh, see you guys soon. Get it off your chest. It's all good. It is 8.15 here on Seattle's Morning News. So this December will be the first in recent memory in which Congress is not facing a funding deadline or a potential government shutdown as we head into the holidays. So what will Congress be doing in the last few weeks of 2023? We called up New York Times investigative reporter David Farenhold. He's on the line right now. So, David, what is Congress going to do without a fight over spending? It's like they, they've the very basics are now taken care of. So what do they have? To, what are they going to do when they're not? Right. I, I think more investigations of Joe Biden, a lot of messaging and symbolism. I don't see, you know, this, this Congress, A, the Republicans have don't have both houses of Congress. They don't have the presidency. They have very little hope of getting anything actually passed in the law. So they're going to be sort of resorting to symbolism and you know making points about Joe Biden's either alleged corruption or mismanagement of the economy. 
So nothing is basically what you're saying. Nothing of substance. Nothing, yeah. yeah. What about aid for Israel, yeah. aid for Ukraine? Like, are we going to hear any debate about that now? Or is that all going to be in January when we do have to take up funding for the government? It will be in January. The, the interesting thing to watch for now is Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, who's he, he still got his formal title, but his power seems to be diminishing. He really wants there to be aid for Ukraine, and is sort of making a, a push for that as part of one of his, you know, it's, it's sort of his signature um, policy issue right now. The question is whether the rest of the Republican conference cares. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. I also want to ask you, because it looks like we're, we're going to see the potential of maybe a vote on trying to expel Republican Representative George Santos from New York, maybe in the coming days. This all comes uh, after that explosive ethics investigation basically came out and said he's a bad dude. I mean, do, is there a scheduled vote at this moment? And like, how does that play out? There's not a scheduled vote. I, I do expect, like you said, the vote to come sometime soon. Santos told us as much this weekend, or I guess it was last week, saying that he expects to be expelled soon. The Republicans, I feel like, you know, they, they have kept him around because they needed his vote, but I think they believe with the new speaker, their margin's a little thicker and they don't need to keep him around to embarrass them. So I, I do think he will be expelled soon. Well, yeah. If he is expelled, what what is the how do the dominoes fall? Like who will replace him? How to, could it be a Democrat? Like what does that look like? Well, so it's not like the Senate where if a, if a senator leaves, there's a, the governor appoints a replacement yeah. in the House. The seat stays open until there's a special election. So I assume they would schedule a special election. At this point, I would bet that would be around the primary election season, like in the spring of next year. Okay. He is going down with not going down without a fight, though. He like held that like, I guess, on Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days, like a three hour conversation where he pointed fingers at like everybody and their brother in law. I mean, does that spark anything? I think people have pretty much decided he is toast, and and I don't think you know, he's told so many lies about so many other things that I don't think he has a huge amount of credibility now. I do think he is trying to sort of draw more attention to himself and bring other people down with him. But uh, you know, it, the people he would bring down would be staffers and people like that, not anybody higher up than him in Congress. Yeah, interesting. So we're also uh, just a year out after the passage of one of the largest climate change pieces of legislation in U.S. history. It was obviously something the president really pushed. Can you kind of bring us up to speed where we are on the clean energy? Are we making progress? Are the things that, that we were trying to do last year actually coming to fruition? Yes, there has been huge progress on funding, building uh, clean energy projects, clean energy, energy infrastructure around the country. One of the most interesting elements to me is sort of where it's going. I mean, in, in many cases, it goes to places that are uh, red states or red areas of states um, where there had been a manufacturing base in the past that had kind of gone away. Uh, in many cases, they're trying to put that back in these new clean energy projects in those sort of depressed former manufacturing areas, both because it makes good political sense, but also because the infrastructure and the people and then the sort of resources are all likely still there or more easily gettable than they would be if you just built out of nothing. What hasn't worked so far in the last year or so when it comes to what the president and his allies were hoping they would see, but we haven't yet? Well, this, this, you can answer that question in two ways. One is the, you know, what's the, what is how has it happened in terms of what's being built? I think there's been some production delays, there's been some technology delays, some resistance from in some places red states that don't want clean energy projects or you know would rather spend the money helping fossil fuels. The other question is what hasn't happened politically, and I think the Biden folks had had hoped that they would see more of a political benefit of Joe Biden from all these investments, from all these jobs. Uh, 
that may take longer to come. Maybe it'll never come because it'll be overshadowed by other concerns. Yeah, which leads me kind of to a, a side question. But the president does not seem to be getting credit for any of the positive news that may be coming out of the economy, I mean, even among his own voters. So here's an example of like, the, he's not getting credit for the infrastructure. He doesn't seem to be getting credit for the economy. I, does, does that put him in danger when it comes to as we head into the, his reelection campaign? I mean, the, the, the polls have shown him trailing Donald Trump or, or sort of equal to Donald Trump. I, I mean, I think we're a long way out. It's too early to really say that the polls are indicative of him very much. But what you're saying is right, that I think a lot of voters, particularly Biden voters, don't give him credit for the economy. I think there's two reasons for that. One is that he didn't go around bragging about it the way that Trump did, which maybe he should. The other one is that what people care a lot about is inflation. And so Biden will say, we beat inflation, we tamed inflation. And that is true in in an economist sense, in that the rate of change is going down. The the prices are not rising as fast as they once were, but prices are still high. It still costs, you know, 20 bucks to buy a hamburger. And, and that is unlikely to go down anytime soon. You know, we're not going to see prices go back to where they were in 2018 or 2019. And if you're still sort of, as I am, like mentally calibrating what things cost back to what they cost in, you know, before the pandemic, you're going to always be surprised. And I think that's the root of a lot of the unhappiness with Biden is the prices haven't gone back down to where they were and probably won't. Yeah. Uh, before we let you go, I have just a minute or so left. I want to ask you about um, former President Donald Trump. There's a lot of talk about how he might use clemency powers in his second term, and it all has to do with the um, this this drug smuggler who he sort of said, hey, we're going to commute your sentence. Can you explain that story in a nutshell for us? Yeah, my colleagues had a great story on that over the weekend. Basically, this guy who was a drug smuggler, uh, who was also accused of being part of a big payday loans scam, used Jared Kushner, you know, made friends with the president's son-in-law, got a pardon from Trump, uh, and then has apparently allegedly gone right back to what he was doing before. So this raises questions about what Trump would do to sort of undermine the rule of law by giving clemency to his friends or to his political supporters in a second term. Yeah, that does certainly raises some questions. It's interesting. Good reporting there. I I read the story. Really appreciate your time. Uh, That's David Farenthold, investigative reporter with The New York Times, reporting live from uh, Washington, D.C. for us this morning. David, thank you. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. It's 847 here. Small business owners say they are absolutely struggling to thrive, and they are pointing the finger of blame at our state ferry system. Cairo News Radio's Mickey Gomez is live in studio with us now. Hi, Mickey. How are you this morning? Hi, I'm doing good. Um, I'm just glad I don't have to ride a ferry this morning. Uh-huh. I know. <laughs> or maybe a ferry would be faster today. I don't know. Also true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Amy Dreyer, she's the executive director of the Vashon Island Chamber of Commerce, mm-hmm. and she spoke with us uh, about an organization that was formed called Islanders for Ferry Action, IFFA. And they formed it in response to a rough summer full of ferry disruptions. One boat service to Vashon Island. That was it. They were like, that's enough. We've got to do something about it. And Dreyer says the island is in crisis because of the constant ferry issues. When the last boat back to Vashon Island is canceled when with dozens of teenagers stranded on the dock after a concert, it makes a big impact. Yeah. She says IFFA penned an open letter to the state with like 50 suggestions that they would like implemented immediately. We need to come forward in a cooperative way with articulated solutions that will help relieve this crisis for Vashon. Now, she says Vashon Island small businesses are struggling under the ferry burden. This isn't just about tourism. This is about getting supplies on and off the island. This is about getting labor on and off the island. She says one builder told the organization a simple trip off island for a small amount of materials can take all day and 
one business owner says, hey, I lose out on roughly $700 gross every time, every day, an employee doesn't show up to work. And Dreyer wants to remind the state that when there's a pothole on Main Highway, it gets fixed. And she wants the same urgency when it comes to the ferries. We don't run on asphalt roads, but we run on our marine highways. And we rely on them just as every other resident in the state relies on their highways. And if there's an emergency. We have ambulances transporting people off island that literally can't get back to Vashon to serve us if we have a 911 call. And she says the crisis isn't just an inconvenience. This is slowly strangling our island community. And she says that uh, the organization wants action. Now, we reached out to Washington State Ferries for a comment, and um, it says all boat routes are struggling and the Fauntleroy Southworth Vashon route is doing better than most. And the problem won't get fixed until the agency has more boats and more staff. I I mean, that's where my brain goes. It's like, Mm -hmm. honestly, I don't blame the ferry service. They are doing what they can with what they can do. But it feels like to me a decade plus ago, we just decided we weren't going to pay for ferries anymore. And now we are reaping what we sow. Right. I, I, I mean, like, I, it, and it's not just a Vashon problem. Uh, we spent some time on Orcas Island this summer. Right. And the entire 10 days we were there, there was not a single day that there wasn't a delay, a canceled boat. The inner island service never ran. Mm. So if we were on Orcas and we wanted to get to Friday Harbor, it just, we would have had to go to the mainland. Right. And then go back. Yeah. Oh, we have a friend who owns a house on Orcas and getting a plumber up there is almost impossible. You have to get them from the mainland. And he, I mean, at one point he was like, maybe I could fly someone up from Seattle. Right. Imagine having to that, do that. And that it would be faster yes. if they did it. Yes. Yeah. And maybe yeah. cheaper. Yeah. yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Yes. Yeah. So um, what she was telling me uh, was that um, because I asked her, I said, you live on an island. There's no way on or off except to ride a boat, except to take a ferry. Like, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And she told us that um, a lot of the people that live there moved there many years ago mm-hmm. when the ferry system was operating in full capacity and that they never imagined that something like this would happen because, you know, there's that other thought of, oh, well, you live on an island. What do you expect? Yeah. You know, and she said, you can't tell people, uh, you know, to, to just move. You know, they've owned their homes. A lot of the a lot of people that live on Vashon Island are seniors, so they can't just pick up and and, you know, and sell their home. Who's going to buy a house on an island that you can't get to? You know, right. So she says that they need this this crisis fixed. And that it's imperative. And it, it seems to me that property pr- prices are also not coming down on islands. No, it's obviously not. people have second homes mm-hmm. that drives up prices. So a lot of people who work in restaurants or so the service industry have to come from off island because they can't afford to live on the island. Mm-hmm. So if your business is all off islanders. Right. You don't have any servers today if there's no ferry service. Exactly. And you're working extra hard. Not only that, but you're losing money in your business. Or if you're a builder and you build businesses there on Vashon Island. One of the th- one of the things that I did ask, you know, it's, uh, being an outsider looking in and I said, why don't you have a bridge to Vashon? Mm. And she said, that's that's not something that uh, that they want, apparently, or that it's going to it's going to cost a lot. Down. Yeah, oh, it has been. been. Right. Yeah. yeah. OK, well, then there you go. It's been voted down. And uh, I said, but doesn't it make sense? And she said that infrastructure would would cost 
an immense, yeah. an and immense if we can't even pay for money. ferries, we're not going right. to pay for a bridge to Vashon. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Well, I, this is not something that's going away. Hopefully, the legislative session. Maybe there's some lawmakers that are going to start inserting some money. I mean, but so this is something we deal with every year. Yeah, pretty much. And about you know 15 or so years ago, when they stopped funding yeah. roads and ferries and started looking at bike lanes and buses and put all the focus there. And yeah, so, so what we have what is crumbling. Yeah, they, okay. they, it was a switch in philosophy. It mm. went towards climate change stuff and bikes and, and urban living and, and things like that and more okay. transit. That makes sense and now. now at the expense of this. Wow. We well, also had some initiatives where we decided to pay less for our car tabs. Is, right. There was a lot of money that was lost in that. Well, but then those were overturned and overturned. We still are waiting for our $30 tabs. <laughs> I yeah. don't think we're going to get a new fleet of boats until, what, 2027? Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Nikki Gomez, thank, <laughs> thank you very much. Very Great welcome. conversation. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.